in your own experience. Meditation is not what you think. People sometimes smile when they hear that expression. You've probably all heard it many times. They smile because it gives a momentary humorous insight into what meditation is. Humor often plays in a gentle way with the force of paradox or ambiguity. So meditation is not what you think means two things. Meditation is not what you think meditation is, and when you're meditating, you're not thinking. Therefore, it's funny and it's easier to connect with than, say, a statement like, meditation is about laying aside your thoughts. That's a little more equally true, but it's a little more prosaic, a little more uninteresting. But what we say about meditation makes a difference in communicating it and in understanding it for ourselves. Ideas matter, words matter, and they can help to illuminate the truth or to obscure it. As soon as we become conscious of an idea in our minds, it has already begun to be embodied in language. We can't think of something without there being words attached to it. Behind the words, there is probably an image Research seems to suggest that the way consciousness works, before the idea starts, there are words. So ideas don't just pop into existence abstractly. Behind the words are usually an image, because words are metaphors. Words contain images. And behind the image is probably a sensation, just a feeling, a sensation of some kind. We always have to check our thoughts and ideas. How right are they? How true are they? We may think we have a brilliant idea, and then uh, when we talk about it with somebody, they point out all the faults in it, then we revalue it. That's why we left hemisphere of the brain finds it very difficult to, to listen to other points of view. It defends the models of reality, the thoughts that it is, and we live in a left brain world find it very difficult to say, sorry, oh, it's all right, I made a mistake. Thanks for pointing it out. We have to check our thoughts and ideas because they've passed through several stages of development before becoming conscious. And they might have absorbed a lot of impurities, a lot of inaccuracies, as they flowed from the hidden, pure spring of truth. It's easy to replace the work of meditation the work of silence, with ideas about meditation, with the word meditation. We could sit meditating and just be thinking about ourselves meditating and evaluating our meditation. Or we could be communicating meditation to young people or to doctors or to friends. But we may not be doing a very effective job in communicating because we're not allowing the space for the person to experience it for themselves. So this is John Main's genius as a teacher. He doesn't describe it for you, but he gives just enough description or just enough evocation of what meditation is to inspire you to want to do it. That was my first introduction when he spoke to me about meditation when I was a student and I wasn't expecting him to talk about it at all. I'd gone to see him uh, to talk about my 
problems, and uh, he was a very good listener and a very wise person. And then at the end of one of our conversations, he simply introduced me to meditation in a very few words. And it had a huge impact on me. But it was very confusing at the time. At one level, intellectually, I was at university on an intellectual journey. Too much belief in the world of ideas, knowledge, and learning. At that level, it could make no sense of what he was saying at all. Meditation is not what you think. It didn't make any sense to stop thinking or let go of your thinking. It sounded like pulling the plug out of a computer. How can you use the computer if it's not plugged in? So that's how I understood it and was confused by what he was saying. On the other hand, the way he said it and the, the, the few words with which he said it touched my heart and awakened something in me that has never gone to sleep again which is a hunger for the knowledge and the experience that I could sense lay behind his words and lay there for me to discover. One of his most characteristic phrases in his teaching is, in your own experience. Find out what meditation is in your own experience. Find out who Christ is in your own experience. Find out who you are in your own experience not through somebody else, not through reading, and so on. In fact, I suppose I could say I, I was suddenly aware of the two hemispheres of the brain, of the two ways of approaching the truth. We call the cataphatic and the apophatic, the left and the right. But I didn't know that, I didn't feel that or understand that at the time. But what I did know was that I had been exposed to something absolutely authentic. I trusted the truthfulness the integrity of what he was saying. That pushed me into trying to meditate, and like everybody else, uh, did it disastrously for a few years and, until I realized that because I was such a slow learner and such an uh, undisciplined person, I needed to become a monk in order to meditate. I spend the rest of my life telling other people they don't need to become monks in order to meditate. <laughs> So it's very easy to replace the actual work, the actual experience of meditation with ideas about it or talk about it. Most of the time, we find that we're not really meditating but thinking, whether about our problems or fantasies or even about meditation itself. And so we need to listen very deeply and repeatedly to the wisdom of the tradition which tells us the monk who does not know that he is praying is truly praying. Silence is not just about developing quiet thoughts, but leaving thoughts behind, including the root thought of our self-consciousness. Leave self behind. Stop thinking about yourself, or let go of the thoughts about yourself. And this is virtually impossible to describe, even though it can be interesting to try to describe it. In the Philokalia collection of teachings of the early fathers of the church in the Eastern tradition, Diadocus of Photike has a wonderful work called On Spiritual Knowledge. And he speaks about this paradox of talking about silence, talking about what cannot be spoken about. He says that the unilluminated person should not embark on spiritual speculation 
So the unilluminated person should not speak about it. Nor, on the other hand, should anyone try to speak while the light of the Holy Spirit is shining richly upon them. So if you are not illuminated, don't speak about it. And if you are illuminated, you won't want to speak about it. He who knows does not speak. He who speaks does not know. There's a paradox. It's actually a way into understanding something important for our work as a community for Christian meditation. He deals with this paradox very subtly and very brilliantly by saying, for where there is emptiness, ignorance is also to be found. But where there is richness of spirit, no speech is possible. At such times, the soul is drunk with the love of God and with voice silent delights in God's glory. So, what do we do? He says, we should therefore watch for the middle point between these two extremes before we speak about God. This balance confers a certain harmony on our words, glorifying God. As we speak and teach, our faith is nourished by the richness of the illumination. And so, because of our love, we are the first to taste the fruits of knowledge. For it is written, the farmer who does the work should be the first to eat of the produce. Now this is a little surprising. What he's saying is, if you can just find this middle point between not knowing what you're talking about and having some knowledge of what you're talking about and catch it in the right way and hold it in the right way, then you can speak about it. Those of you who lead meditation groups or those of you who have ever tried to speak about meditation to somebody will have a sense of what this means. But then he doesn't say, oh, and you're doing such a wonderful work for the people. They should be so grateful to you. He's saying, you will be enriched by this. Holding this point, dwelling in this point, this balancing point, you will be the first to taste the fruits of knowledge. So he says there is a distinction between wisdom and spiritual knowledge. He says, many who are illuminated by spiritual knowledge don't speak about it. It seldom happens. That means the world is full, this room is full, probably, of people who know people who are illuminated by this knowledge, people who live a truly contemplative life. The world is full of wise people, and they don't speak about it. It seldom happens, he says, when spiritual knowledge arises from deep stillness, it seldom happens that it combines with outward expression. So it rarely happens that this depth of spiritual knowledge, subtly and gently enjoyed, also can be expressed. This is sobering for us, sobering for the church, and it probably would make the way the church teaches and homilizes uh, very different. 